welcome to another episode of whatever we are calling this, the podcast of comparative literature and cultural studies at the University of Arkansas. Today, we invited Dr. Elena Paulis to talk about home. What is home for Latinx population? Dr. Paulis is an assistant professor of Spanish at Texas A&M in San Antonio, Texas. She holds a bachelor and a master's degree from Ohio State University, and of course, a PhD in comparative literature and cultural studies from the University of Arkansas. Today, I'm gonna be your host, Guillermo from Curran Balabella. Thank you, Dr. Faulis, for accepting the invitation and um, to be able to start with this conversation to celebrate, of course, the Latinx uh, heritage. Uh, I just would like to know, uh, when you were a child, how can you describe the feeling of home in how many places you have lived? And finally, uh, where are you at right now? Right. Uh, so I grew up in Matamoros, Mexico. Uh, so I, I, I'm uh, from the border, right? From the US-Mexican border. Um, and when I graduated from high school, I moved to Ohio first. And then I moved around a couple of times. Actually, before Ohio, I, I was in um, California for about six months. Um, and so I've been traveling, I guess, the U.S., right? I've been in um, Oklahoma, in Arkansas, in Texas, and here I am back again in Texas. I'm currently in San Antonio. And you know, like, that, that's a, it's a, it's an important question, right, for a lot of us that are immigrants. Um, when is, you know, when does home, does home um, change, right? I think initially, uh, when you're a recent immigrant, you're always thinking you're going to go back home, right? You're going to return home. And, and I don't know when it happened to me. I did. I tried to return home, you know, like after two years of being away um, from my mom and from my family. And, and it didn't feel like home anymore. And so I chose to go back to Ohio and I've, you know, I've lived most, I, I want to say most of my life in Ohio. And so right now, Ohio is home, even though I'm creating a new home now here in Texas and I have family and, you know, um, my daughters and my husband are here. So, you know, so certainly that is home. Um, but it, home is not Mexico anymore, right? Uh, I've been here in the U.S., for 30 years. Um, so home is, is here where I am. And, um, and yeah, so I mean, and growing up, right, I never thought of anything like I where my mom was, that was home, right. Um, and so now, um, you know, I think about that. And, and it was every transition that I've had has been hard, you know, like moving to a new place, learning the new rhythms of a new city. Um, but going back to Ohio was never difficult. I, I went back to Ohio a couple of times. And then, you know, in June of this year, 2022, I moved to Texas and, and it was an easy transition to it. It has been an easy transition. Um, so I think, um, you know, I, I don't know, just uh, maybe your, your life, your season in life. 
um, and those places that have been part of who you are um, become home um, as the years pass. You have mentioned several things that I really like, like uh, moving to one place to another, uh, borders, mm -hmm. boundaries. And I did a little bit of research and espionage about your work. You, I listened to your <laughs> tech talk. And I am aware that you moved based on the tech talk in 1992 to Ohio. Mm -hmm. Now, can you describe how your home neighborhood and friends were at Ohio at that particular moment in your life? Oh my goodness. It was the coldest winter ever when I moved there because it was December. <laughs> and I had never been in a place, you know, that cold. Um, you know, in those first years, those first months were were difficult because um when you live, especially in the Midwest, um, except for Chicago, don't have public transportation that's that's good, right? You're in Arkansas, you're in Fayetteville, and it's and it's hard. Like buses don't come by all the time, right? You have to like really plan, right, to see when the bus comes. And so that was my experience initially. So not only was it winter, then I had to take two buses to get to my classes because I was still learning English. Um, so I went, you know, it took me an hour and a half to get to the school to to take classes, and it was sort of like all day class. And then an hour and a half to get back. Um, and, you know, it, so that time on the bus, like it allowed, it allowed me to just reflect on where I was and, and like maybe even plan, you know, like uh, rehearse my, my English, you know, speaking with some of the people in the bus. Um, but it also, one of the unique things I think about being an immigrant and going to English classes, for example, is that you, um, you get to see the world, you know, in one class. And I, I felt very lucky to be among, you know, people from China, from Central America, from, you know, places in Europe or um, Arabic countries. And we were all there um, learning, you know, we were all there learning a language, but also learning from each other, learning about our traditions or our backgrounds or what brought us to this place, right, to Ohio. Um, so I had to make new friends, right? I, my friends in, in, in Matamoros and in Mexico, um, I communicated some via letters that, as you might remember, took forever to get there. <laughs> <laughs> and then it took forever for, um, for me to get them from my friends. So we didn't have internet or like social media texting, right? Um, but I was, I love, I like that too. Like I like writing and I still do some, you know, I, I send letters and cards and I, I still like doing that. But, um, but that was the way we communicated. Right. And it took long and, and it was, you know, it was, I was lonely at the beginning because it was a very different place. Um, there was no Latinos when I initially got there, like very, very few. And we, when you did uh, find one, that spoke, you know, somebody that spoke Spanish, you like chase them. <laughs> kind of like what you were just saying about, you know, meeting a fellow Colombian at the bus and like creating a connection, right? Because of the place where you come from. That's the things that, um, those are the things that happened to me whenever I, he I heard or somebody heard me speak Spanish in public. Um, you know, we would just find a way to like meet, right? So that, uh, 
we we didn't feel alone I guess or like we were we just wanted to know who this person was that was also in Ohio you know um so I got to meet a lot of people um from my classes and then eventually I went to the university uh but yeah I think it, it was lonely at the beginning um but it also helped me just to really I didn't have a choice right I had to meet other people I had to um, interact with people that were different than me. Um, and that helps you grow, even though I, initially you feel it's, it's rough, right? Uh, it's rough to, to be going through that, but eventually you see it as a, like, what an incredible opportunity I had, right? To like interact with people from different um, countries and places and also learn the language probably a little quicker just because I was in Ohio and nobody spoke Spanish around me. <laughs> So, yeah. Right. I, I think that that's one of the, like, I think maybe the best benefits or not having like a lot of Latin people around you because then you're going to be forced right. to speak English or any other language that you're learning. Now, I just want to follow up on the um, education part that you mentioned. So I was curious on um, the service learning experience as a as an academic, as a professor, as an instructor, mm -hmm. what do you think people should do to help immigrants and Latinx people to create an identity, to create a feeling of home, uh, mm -hmm. to create connections? So how can service and learning and these kind of particular projects, like the one that you are doing with oral history, can mm -hmm. benefit Latinx people to create a home? Right, so I've done different service learning uh, projects with students, but one of the ones that connect uh, maybe more in, on a personal level um, with the Latino community is um, oral history, right? So in one of my classes, um, students that I, that I taught at Ohio State, uh, my students uh, worked with different Latino serving organizations and they did different projects. They worked in the health field, um, leadership, government, uh, but they were also invited to travel with me across Ohio to collect oral histories. Um, and I started that project because, uh, precisely because of this class, right? Um, I wanted my students to be ready to be working with the Latino community in Central Ohio and we didn't really have a resource that prepared them for that. So I thought, well, what if I start something, you know, where they begin to, to hear first-person narratives about life in Ohio, what it is to, you know, to grow up in Ohio, to migrate to Ohio, um, to go into, you know, the, the public school system in Ohio. Um, or like in some cases, you know, be an artist, be like fully incorporated citizens into, you know, into the um, uh, society and in, in, in a place like Ohio. And so some of my students um, came along with me to do that work. And it was really um, rewarding for me. I mean, every time I collect an oral history is rewarding for me because I get to learn a lot about that person and connect. Um, and really offer a, a, a platform, right, for them to tell their story the way they want to tell it. And, um, and then my students, when I witnessed my students doing that work, 
it was rewarding because they were the interviewers, right? They were there to learn. And the community was very welcoming, especially to students, because they knew that they, you know, they were interested and they were learning and they they were willing to share that knowledge with young people, right? And so it was very rewarding for, um, you know, so just a, a, a very positive experience for our narrators, for our students, and always for myself. I'm always, you know, thankful that um, that people are willing to open up their homes, their offices for us to come and learn because um, that's what we're there for, right? To learn. And it was always like, mm, we shared some common experiences, right? Um, of uh, for those that uh, those of us that were immigrants to you know or migrants to Ohio of like um, building a home in a new place, um, uh, in a new with a, interacting with a new language, a new um, you know region, etc. But also um, those that grew up in Ohio, right? We had a lot to learn from them too and to see what connected us and what made us different, right? The perspectives were different. Um, but many of us, you know, share the, the love for our families. Um, uh, even though not every Latino is bilingual, they have a, a connection to that, right? That culture, that language. Um, some traditions, foods, and, and, and things like that, that were very much a part of who they were. And that I, you know, as a person that moved to the States alone, my, my mom and my brothers were um, still, you know, back in Mexico or in Texas. I had to choose for myself to, to keep those traditions for myself and then now for my family, right? So, um, when you're an immigrant too, you have to make those choices, right? To, to make sure that your language doesn't die with you, that your traditions doesn't die with you, but that you keep those alive wherever you go. No, and, 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 and that's right. Uh, well, for the people that do not know who am I, uh, of course, my, my name is Guillermo. Uh, I'm from Curramba La Bella, and I'm married and I have three kids. And what we're doing is we're, we're practicing and speaking Spanish every single time at home just to give them the opportunity to, to experience. And then later they can decide which language they want to speak. They want to speak Spanish, French, uh, English. It, it's totally up to them. Now, Dr. Fowles, uh, I have a, another question based on, on the word rewarding. You, you mentioned it several times. So I'm, I'm curious, is there any story from all those like more than 100 oral <laughs> histories that you have recollected so far in the last a couple of years, is there one of those that maybe really stuck in your head and mm. gave you, I don't know, a lot of motivation to keep working on your project? Oh yeah, you know, when I started the project, I was very um, conscious that our community um, comes from different places and also that um, some of us are documented immigrants and some of us are undocumented immigrants, right? So I didn't want to put any, anybody at risk. Um, I didn't specifically um, want to engage with the undocumented community because for protecting, you know, for, for protection for them. 
um, many of them are vulnerable, right, to our immigration um, system. And I don't want anybody to face the deportation or anything like that but because of this project, because this is a public facing project, right? So there's stories we're going to be are available for the public to, to see and hear. Um, but so the first time I interviewed this woman, um, I didn't, when I made contact, somebody else recommended, you know, um, that I reach out to her. And so I did. And, and, um, we went to a church to interview her and she was an older woman. I don't know, maybe in her sixties, early sixties. And, um, and I didn't know anything about her. And I traveled with some students at that, at that time. And, you know, and throughout, I started, I never asked, right, if somebody, like their immigration status, that's not, not something I ask. But as we went along through the interview, it was evident to me that she um, was an undocumented immigrant, right? And, um, you know, I just told her story and her, her, uh, her, sorry, um, her son and her son's wife were there too, just listening, right? And, um, and at one point, you know, I'm, I'm going through the conversation and she was, she was an amazing storyteller. She was um, really, you know, proud of her background, her, she's a hard worker, like back in Mexico, living, you know, under extreme poverty and then coming to the U.S., uh, but um, very proud and very loving, you know, her family was always in her mind and in her heart, right, with, through everything that she did, and so at one point, we were having this conversation, and I turned back to see, you know, my students and, 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 the, and her family behind me, and her family was crying, right, they were just crying because of the stories she was telling because they were also very proud of her right of of how much work she had done to even get them to be in the U.S. right and you know afterwards um so afterwards she had made tamales for us so that was great <laughs> so we all <laughs> ate together afterwards um but what what um impacted me was that um you know, after the interview, she told me that um, her her sons didn't want her to to do this interview, right? To protect her, obviously. And they didn't know me, and that was, you know, like they didn't know who I was at that time. Um, you know, they they thought maybe it was a trap, you know. <laughs> and so, um, so that's why they went to the church. I think I don't know, but anyway, we, right, right. No, and, and, and it makes sense. It's like a neutral place right, for having right. these type of conversations. But she said she wanted to do it. She told me, I want, I want people to hear my story. I want them to know um, that, you know, I'm a, a working person. I always have worked all my life. I, I'm not here to, you know, receive free stuff. Um, through my work, I've, I've helped others. She was very involved in the church. And it was just like, she she desired to do that, right? Even though it might've put her at risk, um, she wanted to do that, to do this, right? For herself. So that really inspired me to continue, right? Because so, sometimes people never have been asked, right? To tell their story. 
And what we hear in the media is an incomplete story or a one-sided story of immigration, undocumented immigrants, Latinos, right? Um, and so her story was very inspiring to me and to my students. And, and I was so happy that my students were there to hear her and witness her, you know, her story. Um, and common solidarity, because I think that's an act of solidaridad, right? When we're, when we're there together, we'll build community. Even though I don't see her, like, you know, I, I don't see her, but but she's always like a person that comes to mind to me, right? Like her, her strength um, and her desire to tell her story. Um, so, so it was, it was, it was great. Like I always think about that, right? Like we would have never known her or about her story had we not started this this project. Mm -hmm. Dr. Fowles, after listening to this story, uh, I see the the connection between podcast, oral history, and service learning in just with one single example. Uh, what would you tell people who are interested in doing podcasts? Uh, what are some advices and mm -hmm. any comment on digital humanities? <laughs> well, you know, like the, the digital platforms that we have available to us allow us to uh, challenge some uh, maybe frameworks that have been established, even though when we think right, right now I'm teaching a digital humanities class and we see how much of the digital world still is, has been built under a colonial framework and how many of us are doing the work of you know, bringing decolonial frameworks to thinking and building um, uh, projects, right, with that mindset. So for me, um, there is a lot of um, Latinx, Latino archives, digital archives about our communities throughout the U.S. Um, you know, and I, in, in my case, I was interested in looking at the Midwest, and there, there are several, like, projects that are um, that have to do with oral history, with um, digital um, archives uh, that have documents of, you know, the document, the history of uh, Latino immigration or migration. Many times it's just, you know, migrating from one state to the other. Uh, there is a wonderful um, archive at the University of Nebraska um, at Lincoln that has a letter Art, uh, letters um, archive of a family, you know, from the early early 1900s that they have digitized, uh, transcribed, and translated for us to learn, right? And so all of those projects are doing this work of not only re recovery, right, rescuing our stories, but also amplifying and inviting us to learn, inviting us to use those projects as primary sources into our classrooms. And so I think that doing a podcast, doing an oral history, right, um, has that potential, right? Can you think about what's missing out there? What is something that hasn't been um, explored or represented? Um, can, we, can we connect to that, right? And how do, in my case, I always think of how do I build those projects 
in the service of my students so that my students either can engage and contribute or learn from them, right? Learn from those tools or, um, um, yeah, archives, et cetera. And so, I, you know, if you're in academia, I think that those projects are, are super interesting and, and useful for our students, right? They, they get skills and they analyze sort of digital plat diff different digital plat platforms. Um, but even if you're not in academia, right, there are projects out there that are rescuing, um, you know, erase histories or uh, communities. Um, I'm just learning about San Antonio, but there is this really cool oral history project starting about, um, it's called Sounds, uh, Sounds of the West Side. Um, and it's an oral history collection of musicians, you know, uh, from the 60s and 70s. And, and also the influences of like Mexican-American um, music with the African-American community here in San Antonio, right? And so, you know, that's something that some of those um, musicians are older, so they might, you know, not be around for very long. So what can we do to make sure that those stories are collected and that we learn from them, right? Um, so I think it's, 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 there's a lot of potential and there's a lot of work to be done um, to, you know, to make sure that we, our histories are not, are not erased. And the last question, Dr. Powell, is um, you mentioned uh, podcast is an invitation to learn about the past, or of course, like the present and also can affect our future. Uh, I will ask the following question in Spanish because we're celebrating the Latin Heritage Month. So uh, I think that my mom will be mad at me if I do not ask those questions in Spanish. <laughs> Entonces la pregunta que tengo para usted es la siguiente. Si se tuviera que definir con una palabra en español, ¿cuál sería y por qué? Yo comienzo para darle tiempo para que piense su <laughs> okay. respuesta. En mi caso, mi palabra favorita, bueno, que definió de pronto mi, mi niñez fue Paranguaricutirimícuaro. Y eh, este era un, un trabalenguas que nos, eh, bueno, nos obligaron en el colegio a aprender y, y me fue bien, me, me aprendí el trabalenguas de memoria, luego gané en toda la primaria y, y fue una motivación para aprender idiomas. Me, me fascinan los idiomas y así terminé acá en la Universidad de Arkansas por los idiomas. Entonces, en su caso, ¿qué palabra la identifica o con qué palabra podría recordar algo de su niñez? Porque esto lo traté de buscar en sus podcasts, ninguno me da pista, entonces dije, o lo pregunto o lo pregunto. Mira, que me, me, da, me da risa porque, um, porque en nuestros países, tal vez tú, tú te has dado cuenta que hay ciertas palabras que usamos um, para insultar o para, no para elevar a una persona, ¿no? Y una de las palabras que yo conozco mucho es mandona. Mi mamá me decía, qué mandona que eres, ¿no? Cuando en realidad, o sea, y al principio me molestaba, obviamente, porque claro. no, nunca me lo dijo como algo eh, bueno. Uh, pero conforme fui creciendo, lo que me di cuenta es que me gusta liderar proyectos y al mismo tiempo me gusta ayudar a otras, ¿no? A otros. Um, entonces, 
Diría yo que mandona. Ok, perfecto, perfecto. Está buena la, pregunta, la, la palabra, mandona. Segunda pregunta, porque va conectado, eh, conectado con la celebración de, de, de Latin Heritage Month. Entonces, la siguiente es, ¿qué, bueno, qué, qué plato típico la identifica? En mi caso, eh, soy, soy de Barranquilla, obviamente, Curramba la Bella, la ciudad ah. más bonita de Barranquilla, de, de Barranquilla, no, de Colombia. Eh, bueno, disculpe por el resto de colombianos que me están escuchando, pero que no se vea un poquito ahí el regionalismo ni nada por el estilo. Eh, lo que a mí me identifica es la arepa de huevo. Eh, no, no, no sé si, si la ha probado, pero la, la arepa de huevo es una arepa común y corriente, solo que tiene un, una parte sorpresa Ajá. que vendría siendo el huevo. Entonces, por eso me identificaría con la arepa de huevo me encantaba. Entonces, no sé si usted recuerda algo parecido. <risa> Uy, las arepas me encantan. Las arepas, son, yo conocí, como conocí a tantos colombianos ahí en Arkansas, yo aprendí a, a, cocinar, a comer y a cocinar arepas mucho. Este, ¿Qué aprendió? ¿Qué aprendió? Antes que me conteste la otra, ¿qué, qué, qué, qué plato aprendió? Eh, bueno, a cocinar las arepas, o sea, sin... Ah, okay, las sí, arepas, okay. pero también uh, tenía una, una amiga que hacía eh, ay, ar, uh, arroz de coco. Oh. Arroz de coco y pesca. Ay, súper rico, súper rico. <ríe> Así que um, yo comí mucha comida colombiana en mi, en mi tiempo ahí en Arkansas. ¿Qué plato? ¿Sabes qué? Diría que tacos, ¿no? Tacos de, de cualquiera, eh, eh, pero en realidad con, como tengo tantos años en Estados Unidos y he conocido a tanta gente de tantos países, mi, cuando me preguntan, ay, ¿qué comida? Com, que si cocino comida mexicana, es, cocino comi, com, comida de todo, ¿no? Porque, por ejemplo, con una carne asada, pero con arepas, ¿no? Entonces, oh, ok. Es parte oh. de mi... Buena combinación. Sí, de mí ahora, es parte de mí, sí. Pero tacos, tacos. No, y, y bueno, para terminar, esta sección sí la, la, la diría en inglés. Eh, Dr. Fowles, you mentioned something about like a different type of uh, recipes and how like Latin cuisine is connected. And this is something that we have done at home. It's like, even though that we're from Colombia and, and we try to prepare as much Colombian food as possible, mm -hmm. we have... Uh, amigos hondureños, mexicanos, salvadoreños. So we have been mixing a lot and we do not have an, uh, an identity on cuisine. What we have and what we try to do right now is just creating a sense of home, mm -hmm. belonging and community. So the more we're exposed to another different kind of cultures like Guatemala, eh, costarricenses, we, mm -hmm. we have enriched our own culture by recognizing who we are, but also how we connect to the rest Absolutely. of Latinx population in, in, in Northwest Arkansas. So it has been a, a pleasure to having you today. Uh, we'll be inviting you in the following episodes because there is a, a lot that, that we can learn from oh, you. Oh yeah, I love to talk about food, so anytime. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, food is, is one of those things, right, that, um, that also is part of who we are and our identity. And that tells the story of where we've been. <laughs> well, it looks like the episode is over. And we would like to thank the Program of Comparative Literature and Cultural Studies at the University of Arkansas. Of course, we want to thank Dr. Fowles for accepting our invitation and... 
I hope that you can join us in the next episode of whatever we're calling this. Nos vemos.